Hello, truth seekers and silence breakers, excavationists and archivists. I'm Brooke Warner here with Grant Faulkner, delivering you another episode of Right Minded, where we work really hard to keep it honest and to tell it like it is. And Grant, I was thinking about what it means to be honest. And some of the best synonyms are sincere, frank, candid. And it reminded me of the origins of the word sincere. Uh, It comes from a story I've heard my friend Mark Nebo tell many times that sancerre comes from the Latin, which means without wax, which stems from Roman times when artists would cover up the flaws in marble statues and other goods with wax. And so something that was without deceit became to be known as sincere, without wax, which is kind of a lovely way of describing writers who come honestly to the page to bear their truths and to bear their souls. Don't you think? I mean, it's nice. They come before us without wax. Yeah, I think uh, instead of signing off my letters, you know, the, the you, can, you can say sincerely, Grant. I think I'm going to start, start saying without wax, <laughs> Grant. <laughs> and see what people say. Just, hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go all the way there. Uh, no, I think that's a super lovely description. And it, it makes me think that it's such an interesting impulse, you know, when you think of it, that to have the desire to present your flaws and to consciously decide not to cover them up. I mean, it made me think that to know the truth of oneself and others, no matter how flawed that truth is, is actually a fundamental definition of what it means to be human. You know, I I know it's the main reason that I write and read to, to feel those flaws and to understand them, but it's definitely a super difficult thing. So it's amazing to me that anyone really does it, I guess, because it's exhausting and scary and much more to put your flaws out there for others to scrutinize and judge, especially when the norm so often is to actually use plenty of wax. (laughs) That is the norm. Uh, Yeah. And today's guest, Rebecca Carroll, certainly delivers on a certain level of truth and honesty in her memoir. I would say an extreme level of truth and honesty in her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. Uh, And reading her book for me was a good reminder of why I love memoir in the first place, why we read memoir uh, about how all of our stories are uniquely our own. Because I have read many adoption narratives and I've read many other accounts of the Black experience in America. And Rebecca circles both of these themes in her book in a way that showed me like new ways of seeing things, right? Or maybe seeing things again that needed to be seen again or that I needed to be reminded of, specifically around white privilege, for instance. Uh, And I think because Rebecca was raised by white parents, she speaks to white privilege with a unique lens. Um, And I also think she can hold accountable the white people in her own life in ways that felt more potent because of how she was raised. Uh, And this is how, like, if we allow it to as readers, memoir will change us for the better because writers are so generously allowing us to enter into their lives and to see things the way they see things. And that is a particular kind of intimacy that I've always been so grateful for as a reader, Uh, you know, that books like these will change your perspective. In my case, I think what it did was to support a perspective that I already understand about white privilege, for instance, I won't say I know it, like as a white person with a white lens on the world, but I can understand it from having educated myself about it. And I do think the best education I've gotten has been from reading books by Black writers. And then it, of course, will make you more empathetic, make you more open-minded, more curious. Um, And that then, I've said this before, it's a gift from the writer, like in this case, a gift from Rebecca to me, you know, or a gift from Rebecca to, to any of her readers. Yeah, it's totally a gift. And um, I I was going to say, I recently saw a film 
It wasn't a memoir, but it, it was about a Korean woman who was the main character, and she'd been adopted by a French couple, a white French couple, and she returns to Korea to find her biological parents. And it was a really arresting story for me because I realized I hadn't seen this adoption story from the perspective of the child who was adopted in one country and then raised in another country by racially different parents. So that story definitely needs to be told because I don't think that we really understand it and don't understand all the nuances and layers of it. And similarly, Rebecca shows us in this book what it was like to survive the white gaze. And even that is a thing to mull over, um, to understand the white gaze and to think about the impacts of it, you know, both small and large, and the way in which it infiltrates everything. And to write this as well as she does, to your point, she has to hold her parents accountable. And that's a fine line to walk because she's she has a white birth mother and an adopted white parents, and she's wrestling throughout the book with her identity, understandably so. And the relationships are just so complex and nuanced, and I think she does a commendable job of showing how family dynamics can be so hard to navigate when you both crave and reject at the same time, or when you maybe romanticize something that turns out to be a disappointment, or when someone you know loves you is also, you know, incredibly flawed. So, gosh, listening to her in the interview, it was just, I, can't, I don't think you could write about anything as tough as this. Mm -hmm. And she makes it look easy, honestly, like in the book, right? I know it's not like it takes many, many layers to get there. Um, and, and many writers are terrified to do what she makes look easy. And it does come at a cost to most writers. Um, and I appreciate so much that Rebecca goes right in there to tell us about the cost, you know, what she lost in the process, because a lot of writers are super scared that that will indeed happen. And so you do have to kind of be ready, you know, around like the ramifications of what friends of family and family and siblings and other li living relatives are going to think about what you're doing when you're writing about family. Uh, you know, and so going into the family in that way and writing honestly is always going to run the risk of hurting someone and, you know, possibly at worst, completely alienating someone. Uh, and I remember being struck by something that Carmen Maria Machado said when she taught a class for me in the fall uh, about memoir. She said that writing truthfully about other people was like trying to drive a shopping cart between two very closely parked cars in that you're either going to ding the relationship or you're going to ding your artistic integrity. And I liked that way of thinking about it. You know, you're going to knock into something either way. And so you really need to grapple with that and think about like, what is, how are you prioritizing your artistic integrity in the same way you're thinking about how you're thinking about uh, prioritizing your relationships. And I felt that her memoir the way she talked about it, like it almost came at too great a cost. And Kiese Lehman said something similar in our interview with him a couple of years ago about the cost, right? Like there is a cost and there is also a cost of not writing your truth. So that is something memoirists must grapple with. And it made me think of the famous Audre Lorde quote that says, when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak. I know this to be true, <laughs> that it's better to speak, uh, that we're better for having done so. But Grant, obviously, that doesn't mean it's easy to do. And I'm wondering about the ways in which this conversation applies to fiction writers and whether novelists grapple with the same considerations about speaking their truth. Yeah, I definitely think they do. I, I think the difference is that fiction writers have a shield or even a wall 
because they can present their story as fiction. So that makes it a little bit easier, I think. Um, even highly autobiographical stories, if they're called a work of fiction, they protect the authors at least a little bit. And, you know, this makes me think of Annie Ernaux, who just won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and she often speaks about how her purpose as a writer is to tell the truth in its absolute most pure form, no matter if that's harmful to her or dangerous her heart. And and I'm, I admire her so much uh, for that. Um, I just read her book about an affair she had called A Simple Passion. And the book is a, a very unadorned and clear-eyed look at an affair. And, and it reads like a memoir, essentially, but it's presented as a novel. So I, I, I definitely also felt that little bit of a shield of fiction as I read it. That's interesting. And and yay for the shout out to the indomitable Annie Arnaud. I'm very excited to be teaching a course uh, in May where students are going to be reading four of her books. And uh, so important to look at, you know, just the uh, emotional complexity and the deep feeling that she's bringing to the page. And that is true for today's guest as well. Rebecca Carroll is deeply feeling there's a lot of emotion and intensity in these pages, a lot of raw honesty. Uh, she indeed comes to the page unwaxed. And so I'm excited to get to speak with her right after this short music jam. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Rebecca Carroll, a writer, cultural critic, and host of the podcasts come through with Rebecca Carroll, 15 Essential Conversations About Race in a Pivotal Year for America, and Billy Was a Black Woman, a companion podcast to the 2021 film, The United States versus Billy Holiday. She's also the creator and curator of the live events and audio series, In Love and Struggles, which shares the lives and experiences of Black women in America through monologues, stories, music, and humor. Her writing has been widely published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Essence, and Elsewhere. She's the author of several interview-based books about race in America and the recent critically acclaimed memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're absolutely thrilled to have you. And you and your book have been on my radar for a while, and I had the great privilege of seeing you on a panel recently at the Woodstock Book Festival. And now, thankfully and gratefully, I've read your recent memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, which I absolutely loved. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> yes. So let me ask you about writing about your various families and about the considerations and costs, because we have a lot of writers who listen to the show, uh, writers of memoir and personal narrative. And Many, many, many people, as you probably know, are worried about what their people are going to think and how they're going to react. So what considerations were there for you or costs that you might be willing to share here about writing about family with such honesty? Well, the first thing um, that I will say is that I waited a very long time to write this memoir. And I waited until I felt that I had the emotional fortitude um, and an adequate sense of self and self-awareness um, a, a sense of grounding in my experience so that I could be honest, so that I could be radically compassionate. And, and really, and this is, you know, something I did not anticipate, um, I thought it would be received by particularly my adoptive family. You know, my birth mother is, is deeply problematic and I didn't anticipate being in touch with her at all about it. But I did think that my adoptive family would receive it uh, more openly and more um, graciously. And, you know, they 
they didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember when I was, you know, writing it and um, sending out for blurbs and Rebecca Traster, the great Rebecca Traster said to me, she said, I just want to make sure that you know what is at stake here, you know, and, and she meant it filled with empathy and compassion. And then I said, I I do, I do know what's at stake. And it is, it is my gift to my family. And it is my, um, my, my right as someone who has survived and gone on to succeed and self-create. And so, you know, I wasn't worried. Mm. I really wasn't. I mean, I, I certainly, um, I planned for it in that I lined up a therapist. (laughs) I definitely knew that there would be a response that needed to be processed, but I did, I could, I would never have anticipated that my father would stop speaking to me, that my brother would stop speaking to me, that, um, you know, that essentially, uh, and I'm borrowing this term from Nicole Chung, who, who recent, her, whose recent memoir is um, about losing her parents. And she said it felt like being unadopted. And that's sort of what it feels like, um, their response. So that's, you know, now it's more um, just sort of figuring out wh- what that means and what the, what the, the consequences, uh, how that, how I can weave that into my sense of self and not feel regret. Well, Rebecca, I'm also curious about the family that you write less about, and that's your own nuclear family. And and you write at the end of your book about meeting your husband and having your son, but you just mainly touch on the fact that that happened. So I'm curious about what considerations that you had in terms of, you know, how, what you wrote about, about your life before them would impact them now, especially your son or now and in, in the future. Well, my son read it um, when it first came out. Uh, So that would have been in 2021. So he was 15 um, at the time. And he's a boy of of few-ish words, depending upon (laughs) what he's talking about. Um, but, But he said he thought it was very, very good. And I think that what that meant was he was proud of me. Um, but I don't think in, he is able to understand it in, in really on any, you know, deep level. Um, but what I hope is that it will inform him when we have sort of certain kinds of arguments or conversations in which I am trying to explain to him, I did not have a black parent. So this is my first time. You know, this is my first time being a black parent or, or, you know, trying to figure out what that means to you as a black boy. And, you know, the, because of, of the nature of what I do and what I write about and what I'm involved in, you know, there's all sorts of things that he has, you know, questions about in terms of, you know, just for example, following all of the spate of murders, of course, you know, the racial reckoning and defunding the police and, you know, what are black and black lives matter. And what are all of these, what do these things mean? And I have to think in two different ways. Like I think about what would I've wanted my black parent, if I had a parent, black parent say to me about these things, what would I have wanted my white parents to say to me about these things? And what do I feel I want to say to my child about these things. And I can't get past those layers. And that's sort of, that is what, you know, my adoption has wrought. 
Right. And oh my gosh, it just speaks to the multi-layeredness in your book. And one of the things that you write about is the struggle of being seen and not seen, a, a paradox to be sure. Like you're too seen for your blackness on the one hand and then not seen enough or invisibilized. So I was struck by how those two things coexisted for you. And so much so that I actually thought about it for days after I finished reading your book. And I was just wondering if you could tell us more about the experience of that paradox and how you think about it or how you experienced it growing up and whether you continue to experience it now? Well, I think along the lines of paradox, you know, I because abandonment is my central trauma, that means that my baseline existence comes with a deeply, profoundly internalized sense of insecurity. So that means, you know, fear of abandonment, fear of being left behind, of not being good enough, you know, of being complicit in my own gaslighting, of you know, susceptibility to imposter syndrome, you know, it also means that I like attention and I'm mindful about what I'll do to get that attention, which I think was, which I, which I was able to sort of lay out in some ways in the book, you know, in terms of knowing that I was going to get out of that town and that I had to employ a certain level of, of strategy and ambition which included, you know, in the sixth grade lying about, you know, going to that boy's house and it earned me a seat at the table, you know, moving on up. And I was just cognizant of that and of that sort of dichotomy and that paradox of, you know, of having to pedal fast while also feeling like, not that I deserved, but that I was perfectly fine the way I was. So, all of the kind of the, the navigating the strategy and the insecurity that was sort of fueling it feels and felt totally counterintuitive to me, right? Which is to say, I often felt and feel like a confident person trapped inside an insecure person's body, but there's like this constant battle with what I think is my innately confident self and the insecurity <laughs> brought by the trauma of my adoption. And so when, when you then add race into that equation, things get, you know, significantly more complex and painful. Right. And I, so I feel like I, I feel like the living or consequences incarnate of what the national association of black social workers was warning against then very controversial statement that they issued in 1972. Um, I mean, it's just so bizarre because to, to read it, now, um, and I wrote this down among other things they say, was that black children in white homes are cut off from the healthy development of themselves as black people. Only a black family can transmit the emotional and sensitive subtleties of perception for a black child's survival in a racist society. And so I don't feel like I had a healthy development of myself as a black person. Not only, you know, did I have to navigate systemic racism, but I was just bombarded by whiteness at every turn. And so, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about trauma and the strategies I had to employ to endure it. And so that meant also to your, specifically to your question, Brooke, that, you know, I had to, I had to not just be the subject of people's choices of when to see me and when to not see me, but I had to also figure out how to behave in those instances, you know, and, and a lot of this took place before I was even 16 years old. 
or 17 years old, you know, I look at my son now and I think, oh my God, what on earth? Good for you, little Rebecca. <laughs> well, Rebecca, your, your memoir is a type of case study of white privilege and, and there are two different versions of it. You know, there's the, there's the benign version of that with your adopted parents and then the more malignant version of that with your birth mother. And it's it's stark and arresting, but not heavy handed. And it felt like you struck an important balance there. Um, and we've we've interviewed black authors on this show who've talked about not writing for the white gaze and the freedom they've experienced in writing for a black audience. So, so I'm curious how you approach this book and whether you knew you'd have such a big white readership and how that might have affected your characterization of privilege and racism as a result. Uh, well, it's really. Um... That's a great question because it's bittersweet, right? Which is that when you said, it was kind of triggering when you said, did you anticipate having such a white, such a large white audience? Um, and I think of the, the blurbs that I got and I've, and I've talked about this before, um, but the, the, the sheer fact of, of Kiese Lehman or, um, you know, Roxanne, gay supporting my work and this story is something that my white parents can't possibly understand because they don't read these writers, which is, you know, sort of somehow speaks to the, you know, the conflict um, or the sort of the conflicting goal of this book, which is it sort of makes me cringe to think that I have a a large white um, readership because in some ways that makes me feel less like a black writer because in fact, the title comes from Toni Morrison, uh, who I saw when I was working on the Charlie Rose show, explain the white gaze for the first time. I heard it for the first time when I was in my late twenties. And, um, and that was the first time I understood what I had endured and what I had survived and I had language for it. And so, you know, it feels very, um, again, paradoxical and, um, and kind of, uh, a kind of painful because truthfully, you know, as much as I wanted for my parents and my adoptive family to read it and to receive it, um, as a very personal gift, I'm much more interested in it reaching, you know, black and brown transracial adoptees and um, uh, mixed and black folks. And, and that has, you know, I have received um, a ton of feedback from that particular audience. That's more gratifying to me. Frankly, I don't, I don't necessarily trust that white audiences will do anything with this information, you know, it's sort of like the racial reckoning, right? It's sort of like, how's that going? <laughs> you know, what, where, what is the evidence that there, that that was even serious? Um, and so there have been a lot of white parents of adopt of, of black children who have reached out and said it's really profoundly affected them. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I really trust that particularly given that it is the dynamic of transracial adoption, particularly with black children is a microcosm of America. You know, it is still white people setting the standards of beauty, of education, of, of moral behavior, of, of language, um, making choices for black people. Well, it's a 
good segue, Rebecca, because uh, you mentioned Nicole Chung earlier, and I'm going to be interviewing her at the Bay Area Book Festival. And um, so I've read her book and on the heels of reading uh, yours, you know, or, or just previous to. And the, what's complex is the well-meaningness, mm. <laughs> you know, of both sets of white families. And growing up, I knew a fair number of kids of color who had been adopted by white families. And so the question I have for you, given everything you just said, and, and I have zero agenda here i'm genuinely curious like can it be done well can white families adopt kids of color well and do you hope that your memoir you know would support those families to think differently and be more conscientious or do you hope that your memoir would discourage them from from doing it yeah i get asked that question a lot and i do i you know i do think it can be done well i, I what i think is really important is that there be, you know, an inordinate amount of, of self-reflection and um, of, of consideration. You know, you mentioned the well-meaning aspect of it. It, it, what does that even have to do with anything? Like the well-meaning of it is so irrelevant and the love of it is, you know, I mean, obviously you don't want unloving parents (laughs) of any child, but, but, I think the things that I have said is that if you don't have black friends or black community before you think about adopting a black child, what are you doing thinking about adopting a black child? That's the first thing, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like my husband, you know, we met and on the subway and he was on his way to a conference on race and social policy. I was like, what? I did not even (laughs) know that white people existed. Such white people existed, right? Like it, it wasn't a big deal. He wasn't looking for a cookie. He wasn't, you know, wasn't saying, well, I've, you know, I've also got a ton of black friends. He was conversant. It was, it was just normal. He had black folks in his life and you could tell, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, I think it's just, it's a very, very tender, tender issue. And at the moment I feel so discouraged um, by the way that that systemic racism continues to um, triumph that I, I I'm just I would be reluctant to encourage transracial adoption, but I don't want to discourage evolution. Well, Rebecca, we, we love to to celebrate memoirists on this show because it's so brave, obviously, to pour over some of the hardest details of your life and and make sense of them for a broader readership. And I think Brooke and I were both struck by the by the nuance with which you write about all your parents. And you know, there's a lot of love there. There's a roller coaster of emotion. There's blindness and manipulation and confrontations and disappointments. And some of what you write about is universal, of course, but some of it is unique to your story. And so I'm curious, what advice do you have for aspiring memoirists who have similarly complex dynamics with parents? And what would you say to people who feel terrified to write the whole truth, which is a lot of us? <laughs> I would say be very, very clear that you're ready. Be very, very clear that you have a through line and that you're not just going to, you know, throw these memories um, on the on the page. Um, my, uh, you know, the sort of the thing that that gave that freed me up the most was that I decided that only memories, experiences, anecdotes that had to do directly with surviving the white gaze would, would be in the book. 
And as soon as I found that that was the through line, you know, I mean, I could have written about my, my, my friendship with Leah, you know, which started when we were babies. I mean, I could have given that a whole entire book, you know, there were all sorts of things that I could have written about, but I didn't, but surviving the white gaze was not a problem was not a part of my friendship with Leo, with whom I'm still friends this day to this day. So I, my, my, the biggest note is find the through line. It's not just an autobiography. It's not just diary, uh, uh, excerpts or entries. Um, it's finding a real narrative arc. It is, it is a incredibly challenging, um, craft and skill. And it is not just a reflection on what you have, what you have experienced or, or, you know, what you felt when you were a kid. Um, that was the most challenging and also the most freeing for me. But, but the other thing, uh, equally as important that I, that I started with is just to, to be ready to, to have the, the, the wisdom and the clarity that you'll need because, and this is a full circle moment, bring us back to the beginning, which is writing about family, you know, so long as you have the emotional fortitude and the clarity of excavating your experience and the integrity, then it makes it somewhat easier to deal with however your family responds. Well, I'm going to bring us to close by going back to Toni Morrison. Um, there are some touching honorings of her in your book, and then you get to meet her in person and you have that interaction. It's so poignant and she's such an inspiration too. And I think a lot of writers have similar role models and inspirations. And I just love to hear you talk about how she impacted you and maybe continues to, and what it's like to read, uh, you know, to meet your real life literary heroine in the flesh like you did. It's not hyperbolic to say she's the most elegant person I've ever met in my life. She just sort of, and that's, and I call her, I think in the book, the, um, the living ancestor, she just had this kind of elegance and, and radiance about her and, um, and so, so gracious and also a little bit, um, you know, she has a very, she had a very kind of maternal presence. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. I mean, she herself has talked about the way in which becoming a mother was such a liberating thing for her. It was the freest she'd ever felt when she, when she had her children. And, and you can feel that why, because it, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, an intuitive kind of, um, she leans into this sort of maternal, presence. I would, you know, I would say more than anything, her, the, what she does with language, what she does with writing. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's so superior (laughs) to anything. It is, it, it has all of the tenets of art, of intellect, of, uh, beauty. And I just feel so fortunate to live during a time that her words exist. Well, beautiful tribute, beautiful book that you wrote, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, 
this week's book trend is unfortunately an all too familiar one. I hear people say that publishing has taken care of its systemic racism a lot because it can seem like there are significantly more writers of color being published. But as Rebecca clearly stated in the interview, like what is actually changed? I think we do have to look at it because systemic racism doesn't just go away so easily. It is deeply embedded in things. And we saw that recently with Maggie Takuda Hall's book, Love in the Library. So Takuda Hall got a message that Scholastic's education division was offering to license her picture book for a Rising Voices library collection, which was called uh, Amplifying Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians. Pacific Islanders, but she had to cut the words virulent racism from one sentence about the trauma caused by anti-Japanese American policies, and she also had to eliminate a paragraph about racism's broader legacy in America. So pretty steep order. (laughs) Fortunately, Maggie did not make those edits, and she posted a screenshot with the suggested edits or censorship on Twitter instead, and then as you can imagine, people reacted. Yeah, and that was, um, it was just so brave of her because as she said in her blog post, she felt like she was put in a position where she had to choose between her career and her ethics. And, and she expressed her fear that her, you know, principled stance would scare off an editor who saw this and thought she was too difficult to work with. And she even had a book out on submission uh, when she posted. And this really hit close to home uh, because I know Maggie. She's a NaNoWriMo writer and she's been a camp counselor in Camp NaNoWriMo. So we're deeply appreciative of her support. And we tweeted to support her. And we also tweeted because it's horrible that a publishing company like Scholastic was behind censorship like this, especially in a time when books are being banned. I just thought it was just, mm-hmm. it's just so horrible and so misguided and so blind. And um, Rising Voices Library lead editor, she initially wrote, we love this book and we want everyone in the schools we serve to read it. However, our audience is comprised of elementary school-aged children, and there are some details in the author's note that, although eloquently stated, are too strongly worded for what most teachers would expect to share with their students. This could lead to teachers declining to use the book, which would be a shame. So, essentially, they were asking for the topic of racism to be softened and covered up and cut for the purposes of sales. Mm-hmm. And Takuda Hall called the matter in her blog post the perfect encapsulation of what publishing our dubious white ally does so often to marginalize creators. Always our voices are the first sacrifice at the altar of marketability. Very strongly worded, very true. It's beyond ironic also that Rising Voices Library packages books with teaching materials for educators as part of its stated mission to provide students with high interest texts that celebrate the stories of the historically underrepresented. So oh my God, a lot to unpack there. Definitely, you know, and and if a publisher has that as their stated purpose or mission, but is still practicing censorship, then we obviously have a long way to go. And, you know, fortunately, Scholastic's actions sparked an immediate backlash on social media and an apology from the company. But really, you know, I think they need to do more. Yeah, they need to do more. They need to do better. Um, And Grant, before we end, I want to take uh, the time to thank listener Shannon Reagan, who emailed us to bring this story to our attention. I, in fact, had read it, but she said, make this a trend. And I was like, oh, duh, what a good idea. So thank you to Shannon. Thank you to listeners. We are appreciating of you letting us know of 
any trends or stories you want us to cover in the trend, shoot us an email or a DM and we likely will. It's also really nice to hear from our listeners. So thanks for the words of encouragement that you all occasionally send. Drop us a review, share Right Minded with a friend. We appreciate that as well. And until next week, everyone, thanks so much for listening.